Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I suppose if there is a lesson, I would say be careful of your own myths. You know, he loved stories and reading myths and folklore was, uh, you know, something that really uh, formed him in his teenage years. Um, but if you get too obsessed with a mythical uh, pattern to life, uh, he had this fascination with the this idea of the white goddess, this sort of powerful uh, female figure. Uh, equally, he and Sylvia together sort of became obsessed with the, the, the quasi-mythic figure of Heathcliff uh, in Wuthering Heights. And of course, the Brontes came from just, just across the valley. And, uh, um, and there's, a, there's a little bit of a sense that, you know, get too obsessed with Heathcliff and you'll become Heathcliff and that can lead you to a rather sticky end. So I think that that, that might be a, 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 little, a little bit of a lesson. Don't take yourself too seriously. To be fair to Ted, I, mean, I think that he had a tremendous sense of humor, and there were times that he, uh, he sort of mocked some of his own mythical and mystical obsessions, but perhaps he did take himself and his art a little too seriously. But if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have this extraordinary body of work. Important is a poet's life to a reading of his poetry, and was Ted Hughes's poetry the history of his soul? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. In Ted Hughes, the unauthorised life, biographer, poet, scholar and teacher, Sir Jonathan Bate writes, The biographer of Ted Hughes faces the peculiar difficulty that he has been portrayed over and over again as Sylvia Platt's husband, rather than his own self. Platt's biographers have often played the blame game. Instead of passing moral judgments, this book accepts, as Hughes put it in one of his birthday letter poems, that what happens in the heart simply happens. It is for the biographer to present the facts, and for readers to draw their conclusions. Jonathan goes on to state that Ted Hughes was a man who took astrology seriously. He believed in signs, auguries, meaningful coincidences. Often he would dream of something happening, only for it to happen. Hughes, at his most characteristic, was a poet of claws and cages. Jaguar, hawk and crow. A poet who turned events and animals to myth. Yet he was a poet of deep tenderness and restorative energy. So who was Ted Hughes? How central is Sylvia Platt to his story? And did Ted ever escape her memory? Hello, um, I'm Jonathan Bate. Uh, I'm head of an Oxford college now, but I've taught uh, in universities all my career. Uh, passionate about literature, uh, which uh, a passion that goes right back to my teenage years. At the centre of that is Shakespeare. And I've written many books on Shakespeare, edited Shakespeare's complete works. Um, but all sorts of other poetry, English, Irish, American, I'm also uh, obsessed with. And one of the poets who, uh, ever since I started reading poetry as a teenager at school, uh, one of the poets who, who's greatly inspired and fascinated me has been Ted Hughes. Uh, I've written biographies before. I wrote a biography of the fascinating um, English uh, agricultural labourer poet of the 19th century, John Clare. And that really gave me a taste for writing about long and complicated lives of poets. And Ted Hughes's life, alas, it wasn't quite as long as one would have hoped. He died at the age of 68. But my goodness, it was a complicated life and body of work. What a fascinating book, Jonathan. Um, Engrossing does not come close to describing what it was like to read the book. I might start off with a big wide open question, if that's okay. Do you think all good poets are shamans? And what I mean by that is that they can strip away at both the conscious and unconscious layers of reality. I certainly think that Ted Hughes was. He thought that the role of the poet was, uh, as you say, Susan, exactly to be a shaman, to be a, a, a voice almost like... Like a, like a prophet, a, a seer, um, someone who looked at the world in a different way from the way that uh, we ordinary mortals do. Now, I don't think all poets are like that. Uh, I think some poets are much more sort of pragmatic and down to earth. 
But there is, uh, without doubt, a long line of what we might call visionary poetry. Uh, one immediately thinks of a, a great figure like uh, William Blake, or indeed uh, someone that Hughes was really obsessed with, W.B. Yeats. Uh, who come into that category. And that was the line in which Hughes placed himself. He, he really thought there was um, another world, a deeper world, spiritual, in many ways mystical, uh, tuned into ancient traditions that was, that was sort of beneath the surface of the everyday. And he felt that poetry was the way that we could tap down into that that mysterious world. Now, in your introductions, you quote Lucas Myers, who was a lifelong friend of Ted Hughes. I think they met um, at university. And Lucas said Ted Hughes attended to and developed his inner life more fully than anyone he had ever known, save for advanced Buddhist practitioners. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, indeed, my, my kind of working title for the book was Ted Hughes, The Inner Life. Um, he writes a lot about the, the, the inner life in the course of his, his, his letters and his diaries, as well as, well as his poems. Um, this, this sense that the human psyche is such a, an extraordinary, deep, many-layered thing. Um, and again, as with the, the sort of uh, idea of the, the, the poet as seer, uh, what, what Hughes felt was that writing, poetry especially, was a way of exploring the, the deepest recesses of the human psyche. And uh, again, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I think of Yeats, where Yeats somewhere says that all, all great art, all great poetry is an exploration of the poet's own soul. And uh, I think that's, that's exactly uh, what Hughes' work is. That although there were times when uh, he expressed a lot of resistance to overtly autobiographical or confessional writing, there is a deeper sense um, in which uh, all his poetry is the history of his own self. And this, uh, he, uh, he, he reminds me uh, very much, uh, I talk about this quite a lot in the book, of the great uh, English romantic poet William Wordsworth, who, at the centre of whose poetry was a, a long, epic, unfinished poem um, on the growth of his own mind. I remember a wonderful lecture that Ted Hughes's uh, protégé and great friend Seamus Heaney once gave uh, at Wordsworth House, um, Dove Cottage. I was lucky enough to be there. Um, and it was on Wordsworth and Yeats. Um, and one, one had a sense that for Heaney, uh, Yeats, uh, the great sort of mystical explorer and Wordsworth, the great explorer of the individual psyche, were sort of two models. And uh, I think that was exactly the case uh, for Hughes, that one of the many respects in which Hughes and Heaney sort of belong together is that they're both sort of reconciling a Wordsworthian and a Yeatsian inheritance. I was very interested to read about Carl Jung and also Schopenhauer. Ted Hughes was greatly influenced by both and also Beethoven. Yes, I mean, the, the influences on Hughes are, 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 are extraordinary. He was, a, we have to remember, you know, he came from a very, a very humble background, not a literary home at all. He was brought up in a little, uh, little, little sort of two-up, two-down um, terraced um, house uh, in a, a, a small, decaying industrial village in a, in a, a part of uh, Yorkshire uh, where there was a great deal of poverty. Um, then his, his family moved to a mining town. But he was fortunate uh, to be of that generation uh, of, of, of English schoolboys and girls where there were grammar schools and uh, brighter children um, could, could go to a good school. And he, he had a marvelous teacher at grammar school. Uh, marvelous English teacher, who introduced him to to, to, to all sorts of uh, all sorts of books. For, um, for instance, Robert Graves's great book of uh, comparative mythology, The White Goddess, was something he was obsessed with. But Ted's sister Olwyn um, also went to that grammar school, and she got very interested in, in in psychology and introduced Hughes to to the works of Carl Jung. So as a teenager, Ted and Olwyn are sort of sitting in that in that little little cottage, and they're reading Jung. And of course, Jung is fascinated in this this sort of idea of of archetypes, the kind of uh, the sense that there are deep patterns both in the world and in the human mind, and that maybe what an artist can do is is, is tap into those. At the same time, as, as, as you say, he, uh, Ted loved, uh, loved the music of Beethoven. He wanted one of his first girlfriends. Um, they had a, 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 a gramophone record, which is a very exotic thing at that, 
uh, that, that, that time in the, in, in, in the 1940s. Um, and he started listening to records of Beethoven and uh, did see in Beethoven a, a real sort of model of the titanic artistic genius. When he went up to Cambridge, he took with him a copy of Robert Graves' White Goddess, which John Fisher, that English teacher, had given him as a a present for leaving school and getting into Cambridge, and a a life mask of Beethoven that he kept on his wall. But it's interesting that Beethoven has a wild energy about him and a ferocious masculinity to his music, and so had Ted Hughes with his words and poetry. Well, that, that is absolutely right. I mean, ferocious masculinity is uh, a, a, a superb term that you, you use there. If one thinks of the, the, the early poems that really established um, Ted Hughes's name, uh, which he gathered in his first collection, The Hawk in the Rain, um, among them there are, there are many, many poems about a kind of violent animal energy, um, the hawk roosting um, and the jaguar. Um, uh, one of my most precious moments researching the book was when uh, I was interviewing um, Ted's sister, Olwyn, who, alas, has now died, but she was still very compostmentous when I uh, first started talking to her. And she got out um, from a drawer uh, and unwrapped this beautiful clay uh, model of a jaguar that Ted himself um, had made on uh, his, he and his son Nick got into, um, uh, in, in, into pottery uh, and he, he, he bought um, a potter's wheel for, for his son Nick and uh, he himself sculpted this, this, this jaguar and inevitably it made me think of that poem, the jaguar, but also exactly of this idea of a kind of ferocious animal energy. And one has to say, you know, reading those early poems of Hughes in The Hawk of Rain, there are these great um, poems of animal energy, but there are also a number of poems about human sexual energy, sexual passion, and uh, masculinity, a kind of male kind of pheromone, uh, is uh, a a vein that does run all the way through uh, Ted Hughes's work. And this uh, sexual charisma, I think we'd have to call it, was something that made his life very complicated. It was uh, uh, clear from when he went to Cambridge uh, that uh, there was just something about him, some kind of uh, dark energy that was combined with his extraordinarily handsome features, the fact that he was tall and straight-backed, that made him um, extraordinarily desirable to almost any woman who met him. I would say woman, man, anything that came across his way. He, he, he was clearly a high-impact individual, wasn't he? You say somewhere in the book, and it, it baffled me a little, and then I tried, wrestled with it, and I slowly began to figure it out. You said that Hughes was not a fox, he was a jaguar. And when you look at his interpersonal relationships, certainly with women, he was not a, lo- a man who liked to be, to be pinned down. At one stage, um, he was, there was three women on the go. I think his, his sister, uh, you quote, said somewhere that he just didn't like to disappoint women or it wasn't necessarily that he didn't want to say no. He didn't want to let them down in some way. He caught himself in the most extraordinary of uh, situations, personal and romantic situations. Was that the jaguar in him? Um, well, I think it was in the sense of, uh, uh, you know, sort of, as it were, submitting to, to, to animal forces. You know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, what, one, what one, one thinks of, uh, he, he was obsessed with Shakespeare. He read uh, the whole of Shakespeare's works as a teenager and just went on reading them all his life. And indeed, his longest book is a long, long book about Shakespeare. But what, I'm thinking one of the things that, you know, Hamlet says uh, in his great sort of meditations on what it is to be human, um, that... The, the, the thing about human beings is that somehow we are we are one part angel, one part beast. Uh, we do have those those animal instincts and urges, but we also have the power of reason, uh, imagination, uh, making moral choices. And um, Hughes had those. Uh, of course, he had that sort of balance, as we all do. But there were, there were an awful lot of times when the animal element, uh, uh, the sort of feral aspect of him, just seemed to take over. And uh, he, he sort of couldn't, couldn't stop himself. And yet, I mean, the particular remark you mentioned was um, one, in one of my conversations with Olwyn, his sister, we had had a long talk and I was just leaving her little house. And I said, Olwyn, what's the most important thing uh, to say about your brother? And she said, without hesitation, the most important thing to say is that Ted was a kind man. 
And then she paused and she obviously thought about the fact that the way he sometimes treated women would not seem to be kind at all. I mean, there was an extraordinary moment when he married one woman and then went straight back to another woman whom he hadn't married. Um, And she paused and then she said Ted's problem with women was that he didn't want to hurt anybody but ended up hurting everybody. And I, I think that... That, that was the case. Um, the jaguar in him did not want to be in the cage like the jaguar in the zoo in his poem. The jaguar in him wanted to be roaming free, heading for the horizon. There's a line in one of his poems which, which, which goes trapped in marriage like a decaying tooth. And there does seem to be a sense that he, he felt trapped uh, in you know, a conventional monogamous relationship. Um, in that sense, perhaps, we would have thought the kind thing to do would be to say goodbye and to move on. But he couldn't bear to do that. And so although, um, you know, there were many times uh, that he spoke um, of breaking free, he always sort of seemed to go back. And uh, it, it, that, that, that sense of, of, of being torn um, would have made him a very difficult person to live with. Having said that, the period of his life where he was utterly faithful was after he and Sylvia Plath fell in love. And for, for the first six years of their marriage, um, they lived together, they, they worked together day and night. They barely spent a day apart. And I don't think he ever looked at a, another woman until this, we have to say, sort of femme fatale figure of the extraordinarily beautiful Athea Wevel came to stay one weekend in their house in Devon. And that was the beginning of the spiral of catastrophic events that led to Sylvia Plath's death. Well, Having he, said that, yeah. I don't want to just blame Asia. That, that, that sounds a little bit uh, sexist of me. But there is no doubt that she told her friends when she was going down to stay that weekend that she was going to seduce Ted Hughes. Well, clearly he never escaped uh, Sylvia Plath's memory. How central was she to his life and to his overall creative output? When we consider the birthday letters, when we consider some of his great poetry, it's easy to get thrown off balance by this almost myth developed around this extraordinary poetic relationship. But I was just wondering how much of a driving force was she creatively in his life? Alive yeah. and dead. Yeah. No, you see, I, I think she was. It's interesting. When I started work on this book, I thought to myself, we've heard the story about Ted and Sylvia so many times. Surely there's nothing else to say. There are so many other fascinating dimensions of his work. Um, his environmental activism, he was very concerned with um, dealing with pollution um, in English rivers. It was bound up with his, uh, his, his life as a fisherman. Uh, his work for the theatre, his, his work for radio, his, his literary critical essays, his uh, translations of uh, plays from the classics, his fascination with myths and folklore from, from, from uh, different, different continents, uh, his wonderful, wonderful books for children. And I thought, that's all the stuff I'm going to focus on. I'm, uh, I'm almost going to sort of, as it, as it were, write the life of Ted without Sylvia. But then, as I got more and more deeply into the archive of his manuscripts, as I discovered his unpublished diaries, which had not been seen before, and as I looked at uh, the process of his revision of his poems, as I discovered that those birthday letters poems, birthday letters, the volume of poems in memory of his marriage to Sylvia Plath and her death, published just a few months before his death in 1998, 35 years after Sylvia took her own life, that those were not... Um, a little late afterthought. They were poems I discovered in the archive that he had been working on for nearly 30 years. Uh, and there were many, many more poems about Sylvia that he, he, di- he didn't publish. And discovering all that, I saw that actually uh, the fateful moment when he met Sylvia Plath, the period of the early part of their marriage where their work was informing each other's work. Sometimes you find a manuscript with a Sylvia Plath poem written one side of the page and a Ted Hughes one the other. The sense that they both developed so well as writers because of the gifts they shared with each other. And then the collapse of the relationship, her suicide, its aftermath, its effect on the children. All this remained absolutely at the center of his life. One, somebody who knew uh, Ted uh, very well indeed, and, and knew Carol, his, his second wife, said, you have to understand it would have been very hard for Carol living with Ted when he talked about Sylvia every day for the rest of his life. I mean, sort of talk about the uh, Daphne du Maurier, Rebecca idea of the shadow of the first wife. Um, Extraordinary spacious individual, to put it mildly, how she could cope and tolerate and not get jealous. 
us and 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 such an impressive capacity for love and also to give to give that love its wings in a way Yes, uh, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I uh, unfortunately, the way the um, uh, the sort of story of my writing of the book turned out, um, the the end result of the book is that it it really underestimates the the importance of Carol Hughes as a kind of stabilizing force and an enabling force um, within Ted's life, because uh, as as you say, she you know she knew about uh, his obsession with with Sylvia. She knew about his infidelities. She knew about his need often to be alone, whether fishing or writing. And she accepted that. And, uh, you know, in, men- in many ways, you know, she, she dedicated uh, her-, her-, her life to him, uh, fixing his diary, doing his accounts and so on. And uh, there is a rather sort of noble self-sacrifice about that. But um, because, uh, the, as I say, the, the, the way the writing of the book developed, um, I had to be very, very cautious about um, anything I said about Carol Hughes, because by the end she was not cooperating with the book. But I do rather regret that um, uh, it ends up, the, the book ends up making her, her seem less central to his life than, than she really was. She certainly was one pragmatic individual. I'm just wondering, though, it must have been dreadfully disappointing to start out researching a biography of Ted Hughes and to, to expect to use a lot of his poetry and a lot of other research on letters and so on, and then to have these restrictions put in place, and then to have more restrictions, and then to have it taken away and to produce a quite a different book than what you set out to write. So from a writing perspective, how did you wriggle around that one? Yeah, no, it, it was very difficult because the, the, the original intention was to include in the book a lot of material, uh, which I had done the research for, about the whole process of him revising his manuscripts. He was an obsessive perfectionist. And uh, uh, in the archive, sometimes you'd find five, ten, even twenty drafts of the same poem and uh, my, my original intention was to devote um, a lot of a lot of time to that. Similarly, his his great sort of ultimately unfinished um, poetic project, this this book w- that was selectively published um, un- under the title Crow, uh, there's, there's a huge amount of manuscript material regarding that that in the end I didn't use because the the, the Ted Hughes estate in, in, in the form of his widow and his publisher Faber and Faber uh, uh, with, withdrew their cooperation from the book. Um, I had to restrict my quotation from his writing, from his poetry, um, to uh, amounts of quotation uh, that was either not substantial or that fell within a provision in copyright law called fair dealing. Um, and that, that means that there aren't, you know, I don't quote whole poems. I don't have uh, big sort of chunks of his, uh, his, his diary entries. And that, that, that was a frustration. But on the other hand, uh, as a writer, I actually in a way found it quite, quite liberating in that I sometimes think when you read a literary biography or a history book, you know, when you get big chunks of quotation, a big block of quotation, I think as a reader, you know, sometimes the eyes slightly glaze over and indeed perhaps sometimes the eyes skip over such passages um, and uh, the, the, the narrative flow is interrupted. So what I found myself doing was, was paraphrasing and adapting his words and weaving them in with my own prose, almost internalizing uh, a kind of Hughesian voice and vocabulary within my own writing, and I did think that made does make the book a uh, you know a pacier, more more unified read. It's a big book. Yeah. You know. Well, it makes it very very accessible to the general reader, and we're not all um, you know the general reader. We're not all privileged to have a high flying academic um, education, and so you can enjoy the poetry of Ted Hughes and the life. You can question a lot of the life. You can want to belt him, but it does make for um, a very stimulating read and you know I had um, several late dinners I have to say last week as I was um, reading through your book because I literally didn't want to put it down and that sounds uh, you know that sounds just a load of crap but it's actually very true because his life you can't just simplistically say he was this because he was so many different things and there's so many different contradictions and and layers packed in through his life isn't there? 
That, that's absolutely right. And you know, it's, it's very kind of you to say that, that about the book, and that's exactly what, what I wanted. I mean, it is, it is the most extraordinary life story. He's a man who lived life to the full. Uh, but uh, that, and I, I think um, you know, you're, you're right that if I had included a lot of uh, you know, close literary analysis of the manuscript revisions, it, it wouldn't uh, have been uh, able to hold the attention of a general reader so much. But my, you know, my sincere hope is that uh, the, 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 the reader, having, having read the book, will, will go out and buy at least the selected poems um, and uh, uh, you know, sort of re- read, read the poems not in the form of, uh, of, of quotations and analysis, but in, in, their, in their raw form, their, 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 their proper form, on the Hughesian page. And uh, um, many people have said to me, ah, oh, you know, your book sent me straight back uh, to his poems or made me go out and buy his poems or I read the book and I had the collected poems open on the desk beside me and I loved that kind of dialogue between the life and the work. Because in the end, that's what a literary biography has to be about. It has to show how the life informs the work. And the light and the shade. I wanted to get out into the garden, believe it or not. <laughs> Here I am reading your, your terrific biography. But it, the poetry made me want to get out and get gardening. Uh, remarkable, really. I'm just going to throw you um, a, a quote from a letter Ted wrote. Um, it's, it's really, really beautiful. To his son, Nick, after he broke up from his Oxford sweetheart, Madeline. And he uh, comforted uh, Nick with this letter. I think the letter really represents a lot about the challenges he faced in his own life. It's, it, it's only superb, so um, bear with me now. He, Ted wrote to his son, The only time most people feel alive is when they're suffering, when something overwhelms their ordinary careful armour and the naked child is flung out into the world. And then he goes on to say, That's why the things that are worst to undergo are the best to remember. And that's how we measure out our real respect for people, by the degree of feeling they can register, the voltage of life they can carry on and tolerate and enjoy. And then he writes, end of sermon, and then says, which I absolutely loved, as the Buddha says, live like a mighty river. Well, he really lived like a mighty river, didn't he? He did. And what you've identified there, I think, is, you know, the greatest of all his many wonderful letters. You know, I, 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 I would certainly hope that people having read the biography would go and buy the selected letters um, that his, his last editor, Christopher Reed, put put together because his letters are quite extraordinary they're full of full of energy uh full of water indeed like a mighty river but also just full of wisdom and uh his his advice to his friends um and uh, especially those letters to his his son nick are are quite extraordinary and but he's he but he's, he writes somewhere else about the sense that uh, all art in some senses comes from suffering comes from a kind of a kind of wound and uh, i think you know it is the case that we 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 remember what matters in life. We, we, we live most intensely um, at, at the most difficult times. You know, I'm, uh, I'm barely a poet myself, but such times as I have felt the need to write poetry have been when I'm in some emotional turmoil, you know, a bereavement, the, uh, a breakup of a relationship. The, 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 it, it seems to me at those those moments of uh, intense feeling in our, in, in our lives, um, poetry becomes an extraordinary medium of, 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 of expression, of catharsis, a, a kind of salvation. You say somewhere that Ted Hughes was our poet of light and also of darkness, of fresh water, but also of polluted places. I'm just wondering, within all the tenderness and energy and uh, excitement of Ted Hughes's poetry, how do you, as a writer, as a man, as a father, as a teacher, understand some of those polluted places? Well, you, you, do, you do your best to get um, a balance between sympathy and detachment. The, uh, uh, the, the, the book's had an interesting reception. Some people have disapproved of uh, me writing about some of his sexual uh, entanglements. Other reviewers have been um, very, very generous about the book. But of all, all the things that have been said about the book, um, there was um, somebody, a, a, a biographer, a rather admired woman called Sarah Wheeler, chose it as a book of the year in, in the Wall Street Journal in America. And she said that it, it, the, the book managed to combine complete empathy with complete detachment. And that, that was the... Uh, what I what I was really seeking for um, in the book to try to understand the mind, the the spirit, and the emotions of this extraordinary figure, but at the same time not to judge him, to remain detached, to tell the story, to leave it to the reader 
to, to to make the judgments. But but I think this is this is true of all all you know good reading and all good writing about literature and art um, to to combine empathy and detachment. That's what you should seek to do. Yeah, you quote Ted Hughes' one of Ted Hughes' poems where he writes, what happens in the heart simply happens. Do you believe in that? Actually, as a human human being, as as you said, you know, as it were, as a man and a father, no, I don't. (laughs) I do believe, you know, we have moral responsibilities. We have responsibilities um, to uh, our our loved ones and perhaps especially to our children. And it's a little bit of a cop-out because what happens in the heart simply happens. You know, you're married to someone, you fall in love with someone else. That happens. Surely what, it doesn't just simply happen because what really matters morally, humanly, and for the sake, if there are children, uh, what also matters is how you behave as a result of what happens in the heart. Um, And to be absolutely honest, Ted Hughes didn't always behave as well as he should have done. Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, tonight in Talking Books, we're devoting the entire programme to British poet Ted Hughes, without doubt one of the greatest writers of his generation. This evening, I'm joined by poet, scholar and author Sir Jonathan Bate, whose latest publication, Ted Hughes, The Unauthorised Life, has just been published by William Collins, where Jonathan writes... Ted and Sylvia were Heathcliff and Cathy from the first instant. But in reality, each of them spent the immediate aftermath of Falcon Yard in the company of another. She was in some sense creating the conditions for her own tragedy and laying the ground for the posthumous dramatisation of her story. His story. I asked Jonathan about the challenges he faced writing this biography and whether it was his job as a biographer, to pass moral judgment? I don't think it is. You, you just asked me that question as, you know, what do I, as a human being, and, you know, a father, a husband, uh, what, what do I think? And, and uh, you know, I, I, I told you, but as a, as a writer, as a biographer, no, I don't. It's the job to explain, not to either condemn or apologise. It's interesting, though, in terms of the reception of the book, one thing that I was expecting, given the long history of hostility uh, to Ted Hughes from the, 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 the people who love the work of Sylvia Plath, um, and given the, the long history of difficulty he and his sister Owen had with biographers of Sylvia Plath, given the fact that after Sylvia's death for many years, when Ted Hughes gave public readings, whether in Australia or America or elsewhere, uh, there would be uh, placard-carrying feminists accusing him of having sent Sylvia Plath to her death. Given, given all that, um, one of the things that has pleased me about the book is that I have not had a single negative reaction from a Plathian. Um, all all the, uh, the, the, the Sylvia Plath um, fans, and there are so many of them, she was such a great writer, all the Sylvia Plath fans who have written about the book or to, who have spoken to me or written to me about it have said that I, I, they, they felt that I treat the story of that marriage, that relationship, in a way that is very, very fair. And that in many ways, um, you know, they've, uh, my, my book has helped them to, to sort of slightly kind of lay the ghosts of anger around the Hughes-Plath thing. 
But it is an extraordinary, peculiar space to be in as a writer and as a biographer because you have a man who had extensive relationships, uh, some questionable ones, I might add, and that there are some very messy details regarding some of his relationships with women. So it must be very, very difficult. But it struck me as I was reading through the book that whether some of the biographical details of Ted Hughes's life make you want to puke or not, they you certainly have compassion for the man and that maybe in some way you've redeemed him. Was that something that you set out to do? Or is that the way nature takes its course on the body and the mind? That the more we get to know anybody, the more compassion and empathy we have for their judgment calls, whether they're bad judgment calls, or we, we become a little bit more predisposed or warmer because we just get to know them. I, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, certainly a lot of people have said to me, you know, as they read the book, that their feelings about Ted Hughes went through exactly that sort of pattern to, to begin with, um, you know, being being caught up by this this kind of life story, this sort of rags to riches story, um, uh, this sense of uh, uh, the boy who loved nature, um, just coming so far and achieving so much. Uh, then there's a sort of dip in the middle when, particularly when he had he, 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 a very difficult period of his life around 1969, 1970, when Asia Wevel, that, that second woman, took her own life and took their daughter with her. And then um, the, uh, the sort of multiple relationships uh, he, he, he was in immediately after that. Um, but then there is, a, as readers read on, and as I went on in the writing, there is a sort of, there is a kind of redemptive quality um, uh, you know, he never he never silenced his demons, um, but I but I, I I think there is a sense in which you know through his writing he did he did achieve a, a kind an, an extraordinary kind of of, of of genuine wisdom. Now I loved some of the um, philosophical statements that you make throughout the book, and there's plenty, and it lightens it up a bit uh, to to a certain degree. And I think, from a reader's perspective, you need a bit of that because it can't all be tight biographical details and woolly jumper stuff. You have falling in love is often about place and placing yourself, and then you say Sylvia needed a proper Cambridge boyfriend in order to prove herself that she had arrived in England and in English literature. Tell me, when you were writing all of this, how did you weave it all together? That was very difficult, and, and, and indeed that was the, um, I mean, the sort of, in a way, the, 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 the irony of um, the process of uh, Faber and Faber and the Ted Hughes estate and distancing themselves from the book was, was to do with the fact that uh, I had not produced um, sample chapters, which I had uh, said that I would produce for them. But the reason for that was precisely that it was extremely difficult to weave the material together, where you have thousands and thousands of pages of manuscripts, and where you have poems and memories and diaries entries uh, written you know, in the 1970s or 80s and the 90s about events in the 1950s or 60s. Um, there's, a, there's a huge challenge to the writer. Is, you know, do you put the poem at the moment when the event happened or do you put it at the moment when the poem is written or when it's published? So uh, the structure was very, very hard um, for, for, for me to achieve. And equally, um, as you suggest, uh, that question of the, at what moment you go from the biographical detail into some kind of uh, generalization arising out of it. In the end, I, I found a, a method that I, I, I hope worked, where um, it, it seemed to me that there were, there were certain um, aspects of his life um, that really needed to be treated sort of thematically rather than through strict chronology. Um, and that seemed to me to, to sort of get around um, some of the problems of biography as a form, because, you know, biographies can get a bit boring. You know, the childhood is always interesting, and then the moment when the subject achieves fame. But then usually somewhere along the way, you, you, you get a sort of rather dull, middle-aged uh, section. So, for instance, um, when I was looking at Hughes in the 1970s, he was running a farm together with his, his wife and father-in-law. Um, he uh, was engaged in various poetic projects, but he was also engaged in various environmental campaigns, uh, and he was also editing the complete poems of, of, of Sylvia Plath. Um, and it, it seemed to me 
and also he he was beginning to to start writing about his own childhood um, uh, and his, his his family in a way that he hadn't before. And it seemed to me uh, rather than sort of you know have a page uh, which would have a couple of sentences about the farming and a couple about uh, him getting you know writing about Shakespeare and a couple of sentences about him editing Sylvia Plath, I'd separate those things out. So some of the chapters, particularly in the latter part of the book, are a little bit more thematic. So we get a chapter on Hughes the fisherman. We get a chapter on Hughes the royalist, uh, a chapter on Hughes the environmental campaigner, chapter on Hughes the editor of Plath, chapter on uh, Hughes's obsession with Shakespeare. Um, and that, that seemed to me quite a, quite a good way of dealing with the structural problem. Yeah, and I quite enjoyed reading about uh, Ted's relationship with the royal family and the Queen Mother and the Queen, and he milked it a bit, and he certainly got very interesting fishing rights and access. There's a smashing picture you have um, of Ted um, on the Dean River in British Columbia in 1995, and I'm just looking at it here now. <laughs> I think he's holding a trout or something, and he's he, he's standing astride on the rocks in um, a typically masculine and alive pose it's it's terrific i imagine though it must have been quite difficult trying to collate so many different pictures so many different angles or of his personality and temperament like we we get quite a few don't we no, we absolutely do, and that uh, I mean that yeah, he's holding a, a huge steelhead salmon. They're, they're, they're the absolute sort of king of fish, and uh, he, uh, he he travelled to British Columbia um, initially a, a literary festival, and then started fishing on those wild rivers on the uh, uh, the western seaboard of of Canada, and met some very uh, sort of outdoorsy, very masculine fishermen, including a, a, a chap called Eeyore. Boyanovsky, who, who did write a rather wonderful book about fishing with Ted. He, I think he slightly exaggerated the extent of their friendship, but uh, he told tell some wonderful stories that I was able to quote. He, he provided me with that photo. And certainly there are moments where uh, when, he's, when he's in the wild uh, like that, away from all the, the worries about uh, girlfriends and Sylvia Plath's legacy and money and all that, uh, you, you, feel, you feel that, that, that Jaguar, that, uh, that, that wild man is, 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 is in his element. And uh, it, was very, it was great fun doing the picture research and trying to, to sort of catch some of those aspects of Hughes. The last 200 pages of the book I found particularly interesting. I liked reading about the last years of his life. Not that they got more comfortable, but he seemed to have a lot of commitments with charities. He was spread across lots of different projects. He was travelling a lot. And you you may question whether he was content or not, but he was certainly developing an inner sense of freedom. And as he said at the start, cancer got him quite young. And it was uh, rapid enough illness, what he went through, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And this, this is really the, the tragedy of his life. I think I quote in the book a remark uh, 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 of, uh, I think it was um, Evelyn, the writer Evelyn Moore who said mm-hmm. it, uh, that too late uh, are perhaps the two saddest words uh, in the English language. Because one of the things I discovered in the archives was a quite remarkable diary entry that he wrote the weekend that Birthday Letters was finally mm-hmm. published. Um, uh, and he speaks of an enormous sense of liberation that he's had this sort of shadow of Sylvia Plath's suicide hanging over him. The way he's been able to expiate his grief and his sense of guilt has been through writing these poems, but he hasn't dared to publish them. Finally, January 1998, he does publish them. He feels a tremendous sense of liberation. And he says, now I'm ready for my work to move in all sorts of new directions. And uh, I mean, he, he says he's imagining another sort of 10 years of huge, innovative creativity uh, because he's finally been, been released from this burden. It's very, it's very consoling because when you think that he was in his mid to late 60s and that he was able to courageously break through that deep psychological fear and torment and release himself and he could only do that to be able to do that in your 60s it's it, it gives great hope and comfort doesn't it it does but as i say the sadness is that by that then the cancer came back and a few months later he was dead so all those plans for uh, another decade's work you know sort of came came to nothing and he he does say in some of these late diary entries and letters you know i wish i wish i wish i'd had the courage to publish those poems to sort of as it were let the ghost of sylvia go much much sooner were you at Westminster at his commemorative mass when Seamus Heaney spoke those exquisite words? 
I was not there, alas, no. Mm. Uh, I did. I was there in Westminster Abbey when Seamus Heaney spoke. Uh, the, the memorial to, 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 to Hughes in Poets' Corner was, 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 was unveiled. Um, but I, I wasn't at the, uh, the, the service, but I have heard a recording of it. They had a remarkable friendship, and for so many years, they collaborated both intellectually and emotionally and were a great support to each other, weren't they? It's, it, 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 it makes a terrific reading because you see this lifelong friendship which flourished, and they had both offered each other so much stuff and and you know when you contrast the different I suppose family lifestyles that they had at the time certainly when they were younger men it's incredibly interesting it is although in a way they both came from similar backgrounds you know essentially uh you know humble backgrounds in the north um the north of England the north of Ireland uh close to nature to the life of the farm and then, you know, both went to university and uh, sort of got a got a literary um, education. Uh, Seamus, you know, was the first to say that that it was really the example of Ted Hughes that made him into a poet. And as you say, they collaborated together. I mean, they they put together those wonderful anthologies of poetry for for schools, the rattle bag and the school bag. I mean, they were both so dedicated, both to making great poetry accessible, but encouraging young people to write poems. Um, the Arvon Foundation. Uh, that Ted Hughes set up. Remember, they had a, a poetry competition that he and Seamus uh, judged together. They were both wonderful in their support of younger poets, younger writers as well, um, it was, as, as well as being great personal friends. And Ireland for, for, for Hughes was always a sort of place he looked to um, as a kind of uh, uh, a place of retreat, of a, a kind of paradise, really, where he could he could escape a lot of the uh, the, uh, the, the the restrictions of. Uh, of England. He loved England, but had very ambivalent feelings about it. Um, it was interesting. Though, I mean, Seamus gave me a wonderful interview not long before he died. And uh, he, he did say that um, there was a little bit of a sense towards the end uh, that although Ted wrote him the most wonderful letter when he won the Nobel Prize, he did slightly detect in Ted um, a little bit of, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say jealousy, but a little bit of a kind of uh, wry regret that it was the younger poet, the poet who had learned his art at the feet of Ted Hughes. It, it was Seamus who got the Nobel Prize. Um, and Ted, to some extent, felt uh, that perhaps because of the scandals associated with his life, you know, he didn't quite ever get the recognition that he deserved. Um, although that was why he was very, very happy in the, in the very last weeks of his life to, to receive the Order of Merit um, from, from the Queen, the Order of Merit, which is the sort of highest British honour, which is a sort of personal gift of the Queen, and only 24 people can have it at once. It, uh, his, one of his very last surviving letters is a lovely letter to his Aunt Hilda uh, talking about receiving the Order of Merit from the Queen. And he, he, he sketches a little, a little drawing of it to, to, to show her what the, what the medal is like. But is that not inevitable that the biographical details will get in the way of the glorious poetry? And in this case, whether you're talking about awards and merits and achievements or that recognition, that somehow some of the biographical details are a little, if not very, compromising. I, I think I think that 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 is true. You know, it, it, much as one would like always to look at a uh, the life of a, to look at the work of a poet, to look at a, an artistic career um, sort of objectively and in a vacuum, and to judge it purely on its merits, you you simply can't do that. I mean, especially in a sort of a world of mass media, um, uh, works are judged uh, in the context of lives and, and, and of history. And, you know, the, the, there's a sense in which um, the way that history turned uh, did in many ways uh, make Seamus Heaney into a, a lucky poet, whereas the way that personal circumstances turned made Ted Hughes into an unlucky poet. I mean, there was, a, the, 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 there was no doubt that the, the, the movement towards the Belfast Agreement um, uh, and the, the, the sense of Heaney as a, as a healing figure within Irish culture um, enormously benefited his reputation and was sort of part of the story of his, 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 his winning the Nobel. Whereas, of course, Ted Hughes became Poet Laureate uh, and in some senses a, a 
spokesman for an ancient idea of England and a royalist idea uh, at the time that Margaret Thatcher uh, sort of came to power. And uh, he, you know, he, he got rather a lot of enemies from people feeling that he had become a voice of a, of a decaying establishment. Lastly, Jonathan, what is or is there a lesson to this poet's life? Ted Hughes in an extraordinary life, unique, very, very varied, very emotionally charged, and he's clearly unbelievably gifted. Wondering what is the lesson in his life, or should we look at his life in that way to begin with? I'm not sure one should look uh, to, to his life for, 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 for a lesson, because he was such a very unusual figure. I suppose if there is a lesson, I would say, be careful of your own myths. He, he was a great, you know, he loved stories and reading myths and, and folklore was, uh, you know, something that really uh, formed him uh, in, his, in his teenage years. Um, but if you get too obsessed with a mythical uh, pattern to life, uh, he had this fascination with the this idea of the white goddess, this sort of powerful uh, female figure. Uh, equally, he and Sylvia together sort of became obsessed with the, the, the quasi-mythic figure of Heathcliff uh, in Wuthering Heights. And, of course, the Brontes came from just, just across the valley. And, uh, um, and there's, a, there's a little bit of a sense that, you know, get too obsessed with Heathcliff and you'll become Heathcliff, and that can lead you to a rather sticky end. So I think that 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 might be a, a, a little a little bit of a lesson. Don't take yourself too seriously. To be fair to Ted, I mean, I think that he had a tremendous sense of humour, and there were times that he uh, he sort of mocked some of his own mythical and mystical obsessions. But perhaps he did take himself and his art a little too seriously. But if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have this extraordinary body of work. And that was poet, scholar and teacher Sir Jonathan Bate. Ted Hughes, The Unauthorised Life, is published by William Collins and retails for just under €12 in paperback. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been Talking Books. In the words of one of the greatest poets of the 20th century, Ted Hughes. You solve it as you get older, when you reach the point when you've tasted so much that you can somehow sacrifice certain things more easily and you have a more tolerant view of certain things like possessiveness, your own and a broader acceptance of the pains and losses. Good night. Books. 
on News Talk 106 to 108.